So we're going to move back to um, the provider response. I'll ask um, Stephen and Alan. Oh, there we go. I see you both kind of lined up here. Come on up. We'll get you mic'd up as, as we get started here uh, as well. So the next panel um, is, is going to be the folks from uh, Code Health and then uh, one of their system partners, Montefiore in New York here. We're going to talk a little bit about um, how providers are, are getting ready. I'll give you guys mics. Hopefully you deserve it. I don't know. Is this one? Yep. Oh, here we go. There we go. All right. We'll see. We'll see if that gets worse. So as, as we're getting settled here, um, I'll introduce Stephen Rosenthal, who is the um, SVP of Pop Health Management at Montefiore Health System. Uh, been there for 22 years, I think, if I, if I got that right. Um, uh, experience includes uh, actually a practicing audiologist and, and uh, you know, like I said, a, a long history here. Uh, one of the larger health systems in the area. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about it, but really one of the forefront um, of value-based care in the, in the area, especially in the New York uh, State Medicaid uh, Innovation Program. We're going to talk a little bit about that as, as really sort of forward thinkers there. Uh, to my right, Alan Miller is the CEO of Cope Health Solutions. Um, only 19 years at, at, at Cope, I guess. Um, you know, what are the... Yeah, exactly. Um, and serves as, as the CEO of, of the organization, had uh, experience at UCLA and some of the other health systems on the West Coast as well, and, and we'll talk a little about COPE and, and, and how they're preparing uh, their provider partners to take risk, and maybe that's just a, a, a good start in which will lead to how, how you got to Montefiore. Um, but maybe I'll tell us a little about COPE and, and sure. your organization and, and how you help your partners. Sure. One of our folks, Brian Ball, here is here, and he can certainly tell folks uh, after I run out to D.C., but we... Um, Happy to be here. We're a national consulting firm started in L.A. So uh, if, if people have accents from different regions, our accent on the consulting side is capitation. So we understand and thrive uh, in capitation with our partners and our clients. We have clients uh, who want to go slow for three years to get into some kind of upside only with care coordination fees. So not all of our clients are excited to jump into capitation. But in a nutshell, what our firm is focused on with our 100 or so full-time people and 20 or so part-time people, is we work with health systems, large, small, IPAs, ACOs, groups of physicians, whatever the group is, if they're committed to being attributed a population, whether it's Medicaid, Medicare, commercial, or preferably all three, and take that attribution and try to move the needle for cost in, in particular is very important. If they don't understand the need to move cost, they're going to be a really tough client, but also, of course, quality and, uh, and actual clinical outcomes. So we spent a lot of time around the country doing that. Probably one of our more interesting clients right now, aside from Montefiore, which has been astounding, and which we're not only, they're not only a client, but they're a joint venture partner for our new technology. But uh, in California, we're working with Dignity. So you may all have heard of Dignity. If you haven't heard of them, and you maybe went to sleep for a while, they were Catholic Healthcare West. They're one of the larger systems in the country, but they're taking over CHI. Um, it's not a merger of equals. Uh, when, they, when they become the new Dignity CHI entity, they'll be one of the largest systems in the country with lots and lots of markets in which to build managed care systems and, and, and manage populations. So what our company has been doing is working with Dignity in their largest market to really create the, the with them. Now, by the way, they've, they've been doing this a long time. They've got a lot of capitation already, so they, they weren't an early client, but really to refine how they're going to be moving very quickly to take more capitation. And by the way, that's prepayment of premium. 
or global risk, right, with a reconciliation. But, but at the end of the day, they want to be responsible for as much of the dollar as they can. They're building the infrastructure to manage that, very much like what Montefiore has been doing. Uh, and they want to be able to replicate that across lots of markets. So that one. And then Kaiser is interesting because Kaiser, as you all know, is generally a vertical market. But they're changing. I mean, they've been in Atlanta and Maryland and some other areas for a while without the hospitals. They're now in Washington State in a big way without the hospitals. Uh, we're working with them in Maui, and they're trying to understand what's the new Kaiser model outside of California and Washington, Oahu, where they basically own everything. So thinking through how Kaiser, for instance, contracts with other health plans on behalf of physician groups. So, so some of the kind of interesting things that are going on. We're going to dig into a whole bunch of that. Uh, Stephen, maybe tell us a little bit about Montefiore and, and just you know size, number of facilities, you guys, um, you know, sure, revenues, sure. etc. So Montefiore's in the Bronx. It's big. <laughs> and north, and a little and north, north and a little north. Right. Um, well, actually, over the last decade, um, we've actually expanded a great deal. Um, uh, we originally have spent our first 125 years in the Bronx and uh, became, uh, obviously, the academic medical center uh, for the Bronx. And I think earlier discussion from the folks from Mount Sinai, um, it is a city of uh, a great many academic medical centers. And, uh, one of the other pieces, too, is that we not only are we involved in the physician community, but we, cha- we train uh, physicians as well. Uh, Montefiore is actually the, the largest uh, training program uh, in the country when you combine residents and fellows. And when you look at New York City as a whole, we're actually training almost 20% of all the physicians uh, in the United States just in New York City. So an important piece. but. Uh, as we've grown, we've, uh, we've added 10 hospitals um, in the last um, seven or eight years, uh, both in the Bronx and in the Hudson Valley. We've kind of expanded north, kind of contiguous, uh, thinking that um, uh, the important thing from a population health strategy is... Oh, you can Oh. Difference between right and left side? Oh, wow. It's like an elevator. Better? Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, the, um, the expansion for Montefiore has really been largely focused not on bricks and mortar acquisition, but really an introduction to communities in the Hudson Valley. Uh, and so we went from uh, servicing a population of one, 1. 1.4 million people to now uh, looking at 3.5 million people. And when you're thinking about population health or population management, you need population. And the more population you have, the more opportunity there are for the things that uh, we'll be talking about here. Um, and so as, as uh, mentioned, we've been in the um, population health risk business for 23 years. And um, actually, I've been at Montefiore longer than that. Um, and all of this is making me feel very old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Can we talk so, a little more about that? Sure. Just the, the types of oh, my risk. Old mate? That, oh, my <laughs> not, not that specific. <laughs> okay. The types of risk that you guys take in, at your system, whether it's sure. you know, capitation or, or you know, the innovator program and, and maybe the differences, commercial versus, versus government programs. Sure. Um, currently, we have, a, um, uh, uh, as I mentioned, a corporate uh, philosophy around population health and value-based contracting, which we've been doing for these 23 years. And our uh, portfolio is unfortunately eclectic. I say unfortunately because it means you have a lot of management responsibilities. And the good news is that you have folks like uh, Cope, who have a good deal of experience from around the country, to kind of bring some of their thoughts and experience with you. But we're currently managing over 400,000 lives um, in some 11 different arrangements. Uh, 
About half of those lives, a little more than half, about 225,000 of them are in global capitation. Uh, it's about uh, $1.6 billion worth of risk. And in addition, there's another billion dollars associated with shared services or uh, value-based contracts where uh, there's a form of risk, but it's in a, um, a non-capitated model. Uh, so now you're talking about over 400,000 people and basically putting about $2.6 billion financially at risk in these arrangements. Um, these 400,000 lives span various lines of business. So we have both com we have commercial, Medicare, and Medicaid. Uh, we've been in the Medicare business since Medicare began uh, Medicare Advantage in New York. Um, and um, we um, were the original uh, partner owners in Health First, which was the original PHSP or Medicaid uh, insurance plan in New York City. Um, uh, Health First now has uh, over a million lives and 23 partners, Mount Sinai being one of them, as well as uh, several other of the academic medical centers. Um, and uh, Montefiore alone has almost 150,000 lives of Health First, which is already about $900 million in financial opportunity. Uh, as opposed to exposure. So the, the portfolio of having those different kinds of arrangements really um, require a fairly robust infrastructure and the ability to use purposeful data. And we'll talk a little bit about our joint venture on how we uh, developed a tool together around focusing around purposeful data. And you heard earlier, you know, there's tons of information out there, lots of data. But when you're managing a population, particularly over 400,000 folks, you're trying to find those individuals that you can have an impact on. And then once you find them, you want to know if you're having an impact on them. And uh, uh, you need to use the data to help you uh, actually achieve that. And, and maybe just help us um, one more for you, Stephen, before, before I ask Alan a question. Sure. Um, what, where, is, where is taking risk most effective? And, and I guess I want to look at it from two perspectives. One is, where is it most effective just you know, financially for the system to, you know, to, to stay, you know, stay you know, financially well off where you can treat more patients? And then two, where is the, is the taking of risk better for the patient? Where are you seeing outcomes improved? Well, I might have a slightly different opinion than others, but uh, having done this for as many years as I have, um, taking risk, capitation, value-based contracts, those are all methodologies of payment. Um, the uh, exciting thing about value-based contracting, the exciting thing about population health is that it's completely focused on the patient. And so if you stay focused on the patient, whether you're getting paid a premium or whether you're getting paid in a value-based arrangement where if you create savings, you share savings, uh, it's all about managing that patient's experience. And if you're a health system, as we are, we're not an insurance company, um, uh, although we behave in many ways like an insurance company, but we're a health system where not only is the uh, financial opportunities around those contracts important to us, but managing the patient solidifies those opportunities. You want to be able to keep a patient within your own system. And now when you have 11 hospitals and you have 6,500 physicians, it gets a little easier to keep them within your system, particularly if you provide uh, every service available at a fairly high level of quality. But you've got to communicate that. You've got to make the population aware of it. Um, and so I think the opportunities for us is that if we create these savings, if we create the opportunities, not only can we reward ourselves for that, but we can reward the providers and the patients with the dollars that 
uh, become available from uh, providing appropriate care. So that's how it kind of works. Sure. If you can create an arbitrage between what you get paid and what you actually have to spend, um, then you use those dollars essentially to create the opportunities for the, for the providers and the patients to keep that cycle going. And Alan, just in a similar vein, how do you help your clients assess that opportunity? How do you say, okay, you should be taking risk in Medicare Advantage plans, but not in Medicaid managed care? And, you know, I don't know if it differs on the West Coast versus the East Coast, but I'm curious, how do you guys have the information, the data, how do you help your systems really get to the bottom of, of whether or not to take risk? Right. So there's, uh, first of all, you have to have health plans that are willing to give you risk. So you want to analyze the contracts you have today, but you need to understand where the health plans are willing to go, the payers, right? So you've either got health plans or maybe you have a self-insured employer type of opportunity. So in order to get into risk, you have to have willing payers. The other piece is you have to look at your network. One of the most important things from our perspective is, do you have adequate primary care physicians for what's called impanelment? In other words, one of the mistakes we find people make time and time again, and I think one of the gentlemen earlier mentioned it, how these primary care physicians feel like there's no transparency, they don't have the right data. You, I can't tell you how many times we've walked into a system that says they want to take risk, but they're paying their doctors on RVUs, and when we ask them what data they give their doctors, they show us productivity data. In other words, I did a lot, right? That's not what managed care is. What we want to understand is, how many members do you think belong to you? Who specifically are those people? What's their utilization look like? Total cost of care, admits per thousand, SNF use per thousand, out of network versus in network. Do you even know what, what is in and out of network? And so it's a combination of making sure your payers are ready, but then the payers will be more ready if you're more ready. So if they believe that you have a network that's reasonable, that your physicians are going to align with you, engage with you, and get the right data. And then, of course, you have to have an infrastructure, much like what Montefiore and Steve have built. You have to have your care management. You have to have the ability to do utilization management, decide who gets paid. So there are a series of competencies that you start to measure yourself on so that you can help the health plan understand not only how much risk you want to take, but how you want to manage that risk. Because the other thing that's really frustrating for providers is health plans, particularly the big ones. They have a wonderful package for you. Here, you can take some risk. We're going to provide you with all these wonderful value on add-on services, most of which you're going to have to do anyway, but we're going to charge you for it. So there's, you have to understand that there's adequate premium dollar for you to both manage the risk and then, of course, pay the MLR. It's interesting you say adequate dollar. I mean, you know, you're operating, some of your, some of your customers are operating in uh, clients, I should say, in California. Where right. the, I mean, Southern California specifically, where the reimbursement's, you know, the lowest in terrible. the country. I mean, right. terrible, depending. And some Medicaid pro programs as well. So it's, it's, is it re it's really sounds like it's more dependent on their cost side, on their ability to understand what they're really spending. So this is important. This is a great point. People think of California as the lowest paid Medi-Cal, Medicaid, Medi-Cal, right? But a few things. Number one, with APDRG, even if you take risk and you're attributed a population, if they go and get hospitalized somewhere else, as long as the rate's not higher, you're reasonably well protected by the APDRG rates. In other words, they can't just overcharge you. So, so sometimes people even become what's called banker hospitals, take risk for a whole bunch of other hospitals, and as long as their physician partners can manage utilization admits per thousand, they're okay with the occasional out-of-network admit because they're backfilling with Medicare and commercial. So, so the reason Medicaid in California works is that the rates are low for everybody, right? So you're taking risk on a low-rate product even though you're getting a low premium. The most important thing, though, because it is tight, is you want to make sure that what's called the delegation percent, how much of the percent of premium that's quote-unquote admin, are you getting delegated down to you so that you can pay for your MSO infrastructure and, and not just pay for hospitalizations, you know, physicians, et cetera? Mm. So, 
I was just going to add that's an interesting challenge in New York because in New York it's the same issue. If you go to a different hospital um, with your Medicaid card, you're basically not paying any more money than if you came to uh, any other institution by and large. Uh, The real challenge in New York State when you compare it to places like California is the benefit for the Medicaid beneficiary in New York State is is amazing. Uh, All of us should have those benefits um, because you basically get everything covered. There is no copay, there's no deductible, and um, most of all, every academic medical center will see you. Um, uh, there are some access issues, but the challenge when you manage it under the innovator program or in a financial risk scenario is that not only do you have to comp- compete with the utilization of the hospitalization aspects of it, but now you have a whole panoply of other services that are part of the benefit, benefit plan that you have to manage and the prices are market prices. They're not the lowest prices in the world. So it's a very challenging book of business to manage in New York. Can we talk about the payer view? Um, you know, as I think about it, they've taken the premium. And then, you know, is it as simply as, hey, if I can build the pieces of, you know, global cap that equal 85% of this premium, then I've got 15% for, you know, admin and profit, and I can, I can make that work? Or... Or is there a difference? Um, you know, would they rather just give hospital cap because they can manage positions? And I'm sure it's market dependent. But I'd be curious what the payers want from Montefiore or from some of the other health systems, and then maybe even if there's a difference amongst the payers. You know, do the United Health think very differently than the you know Emblem Health here? So. They're so different, okay. state to state. I mean, they first of all Anthem. And you, a lot of you have worked with these guys, right? Anthem, United, et cetera, Ascentine. Atlas, Anthem, United, Ascentine, right? Three big, huge ones. There's not an Anthem or a United or a Ascentine to talk to. I mean, you've, you've got markets, different leaders, their opinion that day. They, they, there are capabilities that these folks have that they haven't yet spread across the country. And I'm not trying to say anything bad. It's just objectively factual that if you go market to market, you're dealing with a different United or Anthem or Ascentine uh, potentially. Uh, you, you, likely. And so what they want is, that's why, that's why I said the first thing you have to do is talk to your health plans. I was just in New Jersey for, on behalf of a client talking to a health plan there, and they laid out their plan for what they want to do. And, and the challenge you have with health plans is that they're just like all the rest of us, right? They like to say that they're good. So they'll tell you all the wonderful things they're going to do, but you don't know which ones are going to work and which ones aren't going to work. Am I really going to get the data? Is it going to be complete? Do I have to use your system? Do I get raw data? So there's a lot of questions with relation to what they're going to be able to deliver on. Um, what they want is they want you to use their systems and pay for them out of the MLR and be happy and uh, not build your own MSO infrastructure that they have to pay for because they want to have theirs. That's consistent with a lot of them. But then you've got a few who say, no, you know what, great. You build your infrastructure, we'll delegate down to you, and then we just want to make sure that you don't come back to us later with a lawsuit or a loss. I'll tell you a secret in New York State, and it's, it's happening across the country, is that um, when you talk about the commercial business, for example, the commercial business in New York State is almost 85% ASO, which is self-insured. Um, once you're in self-insured, you're really dealing with the insurance companies as a third-party administrator. And um, they're as difficult to deal with under those scenarios as they are otherwise. But here's why the employers are pissed off. Uh, because the employers are not getting the value that uh, they would like to get out of it because the insurance companies are just essentially using their pre-negotiated networks and, and uh, all arrangements that they have in place, giving it to the employer and making a guaranteed margin from the employer contract. 
So it's very difficult, if not impossible, in New York State to get a commercial capitated agreement. Um, and so all of the agreements tend to be value-based where you're looking at shared savings uh, as the model. The opportunity in New York State is what the folks from Mount Sinai were talking about, which is to get directly to the employer. And for some reason, employers are, are afraid of health systems, and they use intermediaries as opposed to talking to health systems directly. And that's just an anomaly, so um, they work through brokers. But that's a challenge on the commercial side. So that's why most of us who are managing risk arrangements are managing it in the Medicare and the Medicaid arena. Because those two areas are so difficult financially that health plans are very willing to take um, financial relationships with providers um, because there's an opportunity for them to make a guaranteed margin. If they're passing a premium off to me at 92%, they know they're going to get 8% guaranteed. Uh, and that makes the, uh, uh, the uh, Medicare and Medicaid business really the primary focus of, uh, of most capitated arrangements. Talking about um, you know payer, Medicaid payers specifically, New York's got a, a relatively new innovators program. You guys were you know I think the first we, we were the first. first. Uh -huh. So tell, talk a little about the program design there and why you think some of the states are finally looking at alternative arrangements for you know what's historically been a not so well managed population. Well, it really began through DISRIP, which is really the, uh, the early acquaintance with COPE. Um, and as you know, the state had this $8 billion to try and reorganize health care in New York State over five years. So we're in the tail end of DISRIP, but DISRIP uh, created what they call a roadmap, recognizing that it was only five years and that it would end, and what would be the value if they didn't change uh, the way the system was going to operate. So they created a roadmap that said, over time, Every institution and every provider, organized provider group that's part of this disrupt relationship for sure would have to move into value-based contracting. And they created three levels, level one, level two, and level three. Level one is just a, a plain shared savings arrangement with no downside risk. You just get uh, some additional dollars if you're successful financially. The level two is a shared savings arrangement, again, where you have both upside and downside. So you have an opportunity to have a greater percentage of savings. And then the third level was what they, which be, is capitation. And in that level, you have to meet 14 requirements um, that uh, designate you as uh, delegatable as an entity, which is what Alan was talking about. The infrastructure that we've had in place these many years um, is the infrastructure that you need to have in order to become an innovator. You can buy it, and there's one innovator who purchased it from uh, Evelint uh, and made Evelint their partner in this marketplace. Um, and uh, under that arrangement, there's a couple of things that the state gives you if you're designated an innovator. It gives you entree to the health plans. They alert the health plans that the uh, Montefiore Health System is now coming to you to negotiate a, uh, a level three agreement and that you have to have that discussion with them. So there's no question you have to meet. However, the state didn't put any teeth in what they call their maximum premium, which is 95% of the Medicaid premium. They basically said you can negotiate up to 95% of the premium. So, of course, that becomes a challenge uh, when you're trying to get essentially almost all of the premium from the health plan. But there's gazillions of nuances that I won't bore you with around that because there are other services they had carved out and here and there. But 
Um, that is essentially what the innovator program is, is that if you can reach a level three and have an innovator status, you can go out and contract with a health plan. It's required the health plan contract with you uh, at up to 95% of premium. Alan, what are the, um, what are the biggest mistakes you've seen in, in you know, groups or, or institutions taking risk? What, where have they, where's it gone wrong? I think that, I, I think folks we're looking at now across the country, number one, they have not taken the time to understand their contracts with the health plan. One of my favorite stories was I, I got hired by a client, obviously, who I will not name in the Northwest, and they, look, they asked us, they had a contract with Molina, and they wanted to understand why they weren't making money on their contract with Molina, because they had negotiated what they thought was a good contract with Molina for shared savings and care coordination kicker. So we went in and took a look at their and analyzed where they were, and, and we went down to the doctors, God forbid, right? We actually wanted to go talk to the people who took care of the patients. And uh, it was a fairly short project because we found out within two days that the doctors had never been shown the contract, never been given the metrics, never been made to understand what makes this contract profitable and different from other contracts. It's like, like, the, like Passover, right? Like what makes this night different from all other nights? Well, what makes it different is if you hit these metrics, we make money. <laughs> you know, if you do these things for these people. So it was fascinating. I think one of the biggest mistakes organizations make is silos. They silo, they have contracting over here, and contracting goes and talks to health plans, and contracting doesn't want anybody else getting involved in their contracting discussions because they're really important and smart discussions, and the rest of you don't really need to be involved. Go see patients. Then they have their medical management, care management functions, which unfortunately tend to be hospital side and maybe some provider side. They don't really look at it as a PMPM funded function, so they don't they don't think about their medical management as something that comes out of a per-member-per-month premium. They're very fee-for-service driven, so their whole financial model is upside down. And then again, what's really important is their physicians are completely isolated from all of this, insulated. They don't get the metrics. They don't understand how the contracts work. They're treated a lot like mushrooms, um, except for the fact that they're really smart physicians. And so time and time again, what we have to do, or we're doing one of our West Coast clients right now, is helping them understand that if you give the physician RVU data and pay them RVU, and you have a contract that's capitated or global premium, you shouldn't be upset when your physicians actually manage things the opposite of what you want, right? They'll care about the people, but they're going to manage it the wrong way. So those are some of the really basic ones I see. So a lot of it is good communication, planning together and sharing information, being transparent, which is not something that healthcare people are famous for. Uh, and then really understanding, taking the time to understand what the, each health plan wants, being realistic about the fact that unfortunately, if you have 10 plans in your market, you have 10 different contracts, and you're going to have to work to try to make them consistent, but you're also going to have to understand each one um, and get your physicians involved. How big, I'd be curious to hear from both your perspectives, how big of an issue is interoperability, right? It sounds like, you know, we heard actually from, from Dr. Monk and others this morning that, you know, the ability to talk to each other sounds like it's getting better, but it's, you know, it's still an issue. Um, and so I'm curious if, if there was a solution, if we actually had, you know, pure interoperability would risk-taking be significantly more prevalent? You know, would that be a huge, you know, boon for, for the sort of payer-provider arrangement? So I think that, um, and Steve's been doing this a long time too, there have been folks who've been very successful in capitation long before anybody knew what interoperability was. Um, I, I, I guess my feedback is what I tell our team, Brian will probably laugh because I've said this to our team before, you know, when we talk about complex projects and you look at the fact that people, the things that people built in this city before there were computers, boggle the mind. I mean, look how complex they are. So I think that the interoperability is a, a bit of a screen people use sometimes to not want to get into risk. 
But if you talk to Matthew Mazdiazny, who we're lucky enough to have on our team, who was at Healthcare Partners back before interoperability existed, talk to folks who, who've uh, allied physicians. Uh, allied is a, a Chinese-American IPA, but they've got all ethnicities, about 2 million members. Um, I can tell you right now they have not conquered interoperability, but they're very good at making money on capitation. So I don't think it's related to success in capitation. I think you have to be committed to success in capitation. I think interoperability can improve quality and lots of other things. I would defer to Steve, but that's my general opinion. No, no, I think that's true. I mean, I've been doing it, as you said, a while now, and I'd say for the first 10 years, our interoperability was yellow Post-its. Um, very effective. We went to pink at a certain point, um, uh, and you'd come in and you'd see the nurses, they'd have their Post-its all around their computer screens, you know, with patients' names on them, because uh, back then, um, it was like in the dinosaur days, you know, where, where uh, computers were still, uh, there was such a thing as called MS-DOS back then. Um, so, uh, and we were more successful in those years than we were in later years when we went on an intera- uh, interoperative, um, integrated platform. Uh, we're an epic shop, as, as you heard earlier from Mount Sinai, and uh, actually one of the things that we're layering into our um, epic implementation is uh, Healthy Planet, which is their population-based uh, tool set. Uh, we're in the process of implementing it now. So there is an advantage to sharing the information associated with the patients that you're managing and for identifying gaps in care in those patients that you see opportunities with. And the interoperability, I believe, will be able to help us significantly with that. And the other piece, as Alan pointed out, it's helped us significantly with regard to quality. Because many of these programs, you don't get to keep the money you save unless you hit the quality targets. And being able to use systems to demonstrate that those targets, were, that those quality measures were actually done has made a huge difference. Before that, we used to actually look at paper, and these, they call it supplemental filings, to try and actually understand what was happening with those patients. So the technology is definitely helping, but as Alan pointed out, I think it's helping in the arena of uh, quality. Yeah, I think the technology is, is a, I would think of it as a bonus, right? It'll make it better. But I guess what I would say is I've seen a lot of people get the technology and fail. So technology has never, ever, in my opinion, caused anyone to succeed, right? You have to already have the right business plan, the provider alignment, and the commitment. And then if you use the technology right, it can help you. But it's the cream. It's not the, it's not the core. Because, I mean, you know, somebody, somebody said one time there was a joke, right? I, I, I'm sending you a fax and said, I'm not there right now. I'm not where. I'm not in, you know, I'm, I'm not in 20, thousand, year 2000, 1995. But the bottom line is that, you know, you can move information, right? So you need interoperability nowadays for certain reporting and such, but don't think of it as something that's going to solve your problem if you don't get through all the other really hard things like managed care contracting and physician alignment. Hmm. I'll, I'll pause for a second if the audience has got a question or so. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a question for you. You talked about one of the things that you evaluate is where the health plan, where the health plan is willing to give you risk. So what are some areas that they're willing to give you risk? Is it by disease category? Is it by so that's a great question, and again, the answer is everything in the world you can ever imagine, um, but there are some commonalities, right? So they love uh, shared savings. They would prefer to give people downside. So almost every health plan in the country right now, if you go to them and say, I'm a provider, I want upside only, they'll say, well, let's try to get you into our downside. <coughs> what they're working to do is they're trying to make more, uh, depending on the market and the provider's uh, aggregation. So in other words, if the providers are, are uh, larger and have more market share, 
they might give you like a larger upside than downside proportional potential. So I've seen a lot of things like that where they're saying, you know, let's do risk quarters and but it's it's generally all lines of business that they can, or as, as Steve said, if they have commercial that's actually available for um, risk. Actually, even the commercial for these, yeah, so they can't capitate it, but they can put it in risk like yeah, that. Yeah, they can put it in risk. So generally, we're seeing a lot of that, uh, kind of all lines of business or whatever line of business you want to take. But we'd prefer you take all of our business, generally, as a health plan, if, if we, unless there's a reason we don't want you to have part of it. We're going to put you on upside, downside with some kind of coordination kicker, maybe. Again, generally, you know, you, the health plans are for-profit. Even the nonprofits act like for-profits, and so you have to always wonder, why are they doing this, right? Their goal is to have you drive down MLR, improve quality so they get more premium, do a better job with your coding and your risk scoring so they get more premium. But what they want to do is they want you to pay to build their infrastructure. So where the rub usually comes in is how much of the infrastructure costs, care management, UM, those kinds of things, are they going to be willing to, to credit me for? So... Again, a health plan I was with the other day, it was a very typical conversation. We'll look at 85% as the MLR, right? So you, provider, have access to shared savings out of that. We, health plan, have 15% for admin. So then what I said is, well, the way a DOFR works, the Division of Financial Responsibility works, is we'll cut up the 85% into the various medical pieces, but that 15 includes claims and adjudication and care management. What portions of that are you going to delegate down to my uh, provider? The health plan that guy then proceeded to tell me a story about a consultant he hated who, who didn't understand that you have to take all your admin out of the MLR. So that's where the rub comes in. You really have to understand how the, how the health plan sees the dollars flowing and how they're going to charge you for their services. And then you have to think about the value prop. Do you bring somebody new in, like a Clover, to go compete with that plan on MA, for instance? Do you work with that plan and, and do both? So I think that it's important for providers to understand some health plans own your market and you're going to have to deal with them. But to the extent possible, you have to drive hard on those negotiations and really try to understand what your value proposition is to them and how to get some of those dollars delegated down to you. Oh, you mean like, in other words, if I have a whole big population, but I do a diabetes management program, how do I attribute the savings specifically from that? I mean, I will tell you that a lot of providers don't have the cost accounting detail to probably do a super good job at that. Um, what I would focus on, if I were you, is and what we tend to have our clients focus on, and Steve's been doing this a long time, so he knows how to do it at the monofuel level, but the most important thing is the population, right, overall. You have to look at your entire population, make sure you risk score it so you can understand how it compares across your doctors, and really focus on how your primary care doctor's panels are being managed vis-a-vis each other. And then when you put different types of initiatives into place, if you have a complicated pro forma, you can actually look at the impact of that actuarially. I will tell you, most of our clients outside of places like Montefiore are not ready to do that yet. And what I would have them focus on is have them focus on total cost of care and evidence-based interactions and not be too stressed out about which interaction specifically is going to create a profit. But again, Steve, I don't know if you have a different No, I mean, I think that makes sense. But we've actually um, taken many cohorts within our delivery system, within our population that were at risk, like end-stage renal disease, cancer, cardiovascular disease, diabetes. And we do cluster them, and we do create financial uh, incentives for the providers um, so that if they actually do help us create savings, they share in those savings directly on a kind of a real-time basis. They don't have to wait because if we're already paid for it, we can give them the savings as the savings actually occur. So, and that, there, you know, if you have the claims data and you have a tool, 
uh, like the tool ARC that we've developed together with, um, uh, with uh, COPE, uh, you can very easily see whether those providers in that panel of patients are creating the savings. Actually, that's a good point. I, I was thinking disease management, but at a service line letter level, it's like Steve said, it's fairly easy. So at an oncology level or cardiology level, uh, many of our clients capitate the orthopods, capitate uh, OB, cap- subcapitate type of programs for oncology. So, but it's more of a service line level, not like a disease state, other than end stage renal, which is, it, again, it's a very specific cohort. Maybe just one last question. Um, I'll ask Stephen. You've got a lot of the technology in place. You've got, you know, a lot of, um, you know, IP around risk management, and you've got, you know, all sorts of different cohorts, and you've got a full delivery system. Why not start the health plan? Well, it's a great question, and I think some of it was alluded to earlier, is that there's a, a certain amount of challenge for a delivery system to build a health plan um, that um, uh, uh, creates um, a, a source of financial drain in a different direction, particularly things like reserve requirements and the um, overall compliance issues. <clears throat> also, you don't have the ability um, to cross-market <clears throat> in a bigger geofra- geography because you know, being financially at risk, whether you're a health plan or not, uh, scale is very important. And if you can't scale, if your provider community, I mean, Clover's been able to grow into different markets, perhaps if we had an insurance company, we would have to do that in order to create the scale. And that's not our core business structure. So what we're doing now and what we've historically done is we've tried to partner with the health plans in a more unique way than just taking financial risk, actually work with them towards creating a joint venture. Because at the end of the day, and we've been talking about uh, insurance companies, and I don't, I've been on the provider side my entire career, uh, insurance companies don't work well with providers. Um, and it's an anomaly that uh, doesn't change, even though intuitively and intellectually you would say, why shouldn't they? Uh, and so yet no one has actually been all that successful that I'm aware of, perhaps in the regional areas maybe, but not the large ones. And the large ones are becoming more and more difficult to deal with. So um, it's becoming an issue where it's easier to um, contract locally with a provider who's in that market as a joint venture and limit your partners. You can't, be, um, uh, you can't have a million partners in healthcare anymore. Uh, you really have to pick one or two partners by product line uh, and stick with those so that you don't dilute your network, you bring more business to your physicians, and you're able to actually have a better handle on managing that population because it's not fragmented by 16 different methodologies, negotiating teams, corporate structures that create impediments for actually better managing the patient. Perfect. I think we're going to have to leave it there and uh, get ready for our last panel. Uh, Alan, Stephen, thank you both. You're very welcome.